Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley and welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Today we are learning about remote viewing, and we have with us John Knowles, who has 20 years experience as a remote viewer, analyst, project manager, group manager, and instructor. He's a Harvard University and University of California Berkeley graduate and the author of Remote Viewing from the Ground Up. He is also a co-author of Associative Remote Viewing, The Art and Science of Predicting Outcomes of Sports, politics, finances, and the lottery. Welcome to the show, John. So glad you have to have you here today. Thank you, Barbara. It's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Tell me, what is remote viewing? Yeah, remote viewing is this fascinating field that was actually, for 20 years, sponsored by the U.S. government in order to try to find spies, uh, uh, find uh, facilities in Russia that otherwise they didn't have information about uh, generals who were kidnapped to try to locate them. And since then, it's come into the public domain uh, since 1995. And you could describe it as a psychic craft. It's one des- description because in remote viewing, you can get information that's not perceptible by your ordinary senses. And you can also get information from the future. This sounds incredible <laughs> and it is incredible. But uh, there's, it's a reality, and it uh, took me a while to accept it, uh, although I've been pretty open to these kinds of things since I was a kid, uh, UFOs and so forth, which we'll talk about later, I gather. Mm-hmm. Um, so remote viewing is characterized by the fact that it's a protocol. In other words, if you just have a dream and something uh, in the future comes to your mind, that's not remote viewing. Strictly remote viewing, as developed by the Stanford Research Institute, has to be intentional, it has to have a situation where the remote viewer, as they call it, the person who's getting the information, does not know the target. And the target being? The target could be anything. It could be, uh, a, uh, like I say, a kidnapped general. It could be the outcome of a game. It could be a missing person. It could be a scientific process. It could be what your, your client wants to know, the business client. It could mm-hmm. be used in many different applications. And the other, another feature of it, there has to be feedback. In other words, you have to know at the end of this process uh, what the actual target was. So that if you targeted something like the uh, Empire State Building, well, that's a really existing uh, structure, and you can have hard feedback if you were to view that or not. If you have something like a UFO, then the feedback is much more questionable. So people yeah. tend to stay away until recently from, from UFOs. So in brief, that's sort of the, the protocol is what determines it. You can actually use different methods. To, and there's two main methods, which I can describe uh, shortly or, or now if you want to. to but you know, you can tell me about the yeah. methods yeah. And, so, and how it's done. But before we go there, I, want, I have one question. Sure. It is remote viewing is different from being psychic. Do they use different parts of the brain or? No, it seems to be a uh, our capability has a spectrum and you could call it psychic, you can call it remote viewing, but the protocol is what determines remote viewing. So it is the same Mm -hmm. capabilities. So PSI, call it. So it's not really different. It's the uh, method that is different. That defines it. There are two two basic approaches. Um, Remote viewing was first developed in the civilian field at the Stanford Research Institute by civilians, but for the military. And, mm-hmm. and that was their that was their remote viewing program was the Stanford research. It started there, yes. It came yeah. to be called Stargate as the overall name. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two different approaches are in the first approach, the scientists or the tasker we call them, the person who wants to know the information, tells the viewer, just says target. I'll give you an example. Um Dr. Ed May, who was the head of the program from 1985 to 95, uh, I was down in his office. He was giving uh, this group I was part of some software, and he tested me. 
And he, all he said was target. So I drew some sketches and some words, and he compared that to the uh, situ the software that he had developed for this process. And that was all there was to it. There was no method. There was no steps. There was no stages. There was no training, really. He just did it. And that was the, the dominant form of remote viewing at, at Stanford Research Institute until Ingo Swan came along. Ingo Swan, S-W-A-N-N, -N, was a New York artist and psychic who uh, startled the CIA with his abilities. And so they had mm -hmm. contracts out for him to work with. And he developed something called controlled remote viewing. And in controlled remote viewing, you have six stages or steps that you go through. Uh, so it's very uh, rig uh, rigid in a way, although you can get flexible with it. But since then, there have been also other offshoots of controlled remote viewing, scientific remote viewing, transdimensional systems remote viewing, and others, which have set stages and steps, six or more, depends. So those are the two main approaches, and about 95% of the remote viewers use the what we call the method approach, that is controlled remote viewing or one of its offshoots. There are a few natural remote viewers around who work on projects. However, two of the very best remote viewers, Joe McMonagall and Ingo Swan, both used natural or generic, as we call it, remote viewing. They did not use controlled remote viewing. So you can go either route, but that's the basic outline of the methods uh, within the remote viewing protocol. And controlled remote viewing, which is CRV, I think. Yeah. And that is using that, that specific protocol or using a protocol? Well, CRV is a method. And yeah. it's within the protocol, of the, with the viewer must be blind to the target. Nobody in the room should know the target. Because the information comes in through your unconscious or your subconscious, however right. you want to talk about it. It doesn't come in through your conscious mind. You need to get your conscious mind out of the way. Uh, and so like meditation is a good way to cool down before you do a session. Mm -hmm. And cool down, meaning kind of relaxing and getting into your space, what I would call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also just emptying your mind. You want to yeah. empty your mind of all co conscious thoughts. At, at Stanford, when I was there with Ed May, for example, he said, okay, if you have any thoughts, write them down on a piece of paper, then take that paper and throw it away. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then begin your session. Other people just use something called hemisync, which is uh, a form of uh, relaxational music or tones, human resonance tones, the Earth's frequency, or some other uh, kind of. Uh, but Paul Smith, who's one of the uh, foremost teachers of remote viewing, listens to heavy uh, heavy metal music before he begins. Wow, <laughs> I couldn't do that. No. I couldn't either. That yeah. that would go the wrong direction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And what is the what is this protocol? So, say so you've got the cool down. You start with the cool down, right? And again, the situation is the, what makes the protocol. In other words, that nobody in the room knows the target, but what the answer to the question is. The question might be, you know, um, where is this rogue customs agent? That was an actual from an actual case. Mm -hmm. That might be the question, but the viewer. The person who's going to do the session doesn't know that right. ordinarily. Ordinarily, of course, in the laboratory it's one thing. In the laboratory, everything has to be double blind. But when you mm -hmm. do operations, then a certain amount of what we call front loading is often used. In other words, the people at Fort Meade who were viewing for the military would know that there was a missing person. They would know that, so they're front loaded. We call that, but they wouldn't know who or where. So. That's part of the protocol that you have to do if, if you're going to call it remote viewing and feedback. In other words, getting solid information from a ground truth source, as I say, you know, ground truth meaning someone who's actually there and knows what a physical object or whatever we're looking at is actually existing. That feedback has to be part of the protocol too for it to technically for it to be called remote viewing. But of course, as with lots of definitions, there's a certain amount of leeway and fuzziness and in, mm -hmm. in the practice of it. So I, you know, it's one thing to say exactly what the formal protocols are, but it's another thing how it's actually put into practice. Before we go there, I have one clarification I need. Um, the, the feedback where you said you have somebody there, you know, at the location, is that in real time or is that later? Well, I, to clarify, the person doesn't have to be there. You, if, if the target, as I say, is the uh, 
golden arches there <laughs> in St. Louis. You just have right. to have a photo of it, and everybody knows that it's real. Everyone assumes that that oh, okay. photo they see. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to be real, and you have to know it's real, and right. and that's where. Okay. And then um, you said there are two kinds of remote viewing. What is the other one? Well, the first kind, uh, as I said, at uh, Stanford Research Institute, we call it natural or generic remote mm-hmm. viewing, where you're not, uh, no protocol, no, sorry, there's no steps. You just get the information, you sit back and relax, and whatever comes into your mind. I mean, there's different ways you can do that to get the information. But these, so that's one approach. And then the other method is a, a controlled remote viewing of all of the offshoots that have these six stages or steps with specific things you do in each stage. I got you. So when, when you're teaching, you are using that, uh, the protocol? We're using the protocol uh, appropriate for teaching, which is slightly different because you want, sometimes you want the viewers to have feedback more quickly. And so sometimes you might have a pair of viewers, uh, students working together and one of them might know something about the target and the viewer might not. But that's just in a teaching situation. Mm-hmm. Does it make a difference if you're working alone or working with a group? Does a group energy enhance your ability? Um, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, I think it's pretty much universally accepted that in classroom of remote viewing, when you're there with other students and you're first learning, there's not only a first time effect, there's also a group effect of being around. Now, some people say, uh, Maybe you're just reading the instructor's mind. They call it telepathic. Yeah, telepathy. I wondered about that, too. Yeah. Yeah. That you might be doing that. Um, Yeah. And in general, I've been in three groups. uh, And I think having experience in those three groups over 20 years has been extremely beneficial because you get to see how other people view and all the techniques. But also you build build connection with people. Remote viewing changes most people's lives and that they feel much more connected with the universe and with other people. So that's a huge, huge thing, you know, in a, in a country or in a world where it's easy to feel depressed and isolated. Remote viewing actually, I think, brings people together. So we're basically, you start off with let's change reality. <laughs> or our reality, I should say, not reality, but our reality, because um, when you're going into that, you can see any, and I assume anywhere in the world, you can, I mean, there's no boundaries on That's where right. you can look. Okay. One example of that was Ingo Swan. Uh, <laughs> he was tired of viewing sort of trivial things. He said, why don't you give me something interesting to view instead of you know, things in containers? He said, you know what, I'm going to view what the flyby of, of Jupiter, there was a satellite going out to Jupiter, and it wouldn't get there for a few years. And he said, I'm going to view Jupiter. So he did, and uh, he said, well, there's rings around Jupiter, and he described them and everything. And at the time, scientists did not think there were rings around Jupiter, there were rings around Saturn, but not around Jupiter. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, when the satellite got there, they found you know, very elaborate structure of rings as well as other data. So this was something that nobody knew. It was right. from the future. It was distant. And so they haven't found any uh, distance limitations so far on remote moon. So that takes care of telepathy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Did he, by the way, look and see if there was any life there? While he was looking? <laughs> um, I don't think he reported on the existence of any life there, but uh, on Mars is another question <laughs> because we both viewers have, you know, with Mars and, you know, separately, independently. In fact, Ingo Swan ran a, ran a few viewers on that and they did find unusual, let's say, entities that were there, uh, including from four million years ago, supposedly. I mean, you have to take some of it with a grain of salt. Four right. million years, really, do we know that? Because Joe McMonagle, who was one of the you know, best and a wonderful guy, too, by the way, um, mm-hmm. wrote a book about the ultimate time machine. And he, he predicted a, a lot of different uh, events and things that were supposed to occur. And some have and some haven't. And he sort of recently said, well, I don't think that was entirely accurate, that book. So I'm not going to be doing that too much. Anymore. Yeah. But he, he's one of the very best remote viewers. And uh, we talked about commercial applications beforehand. And he was one of the persons who has had 
quite a few clients, but he doesn't publish, publish any of that work, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, what percentage of hits, I call, you know, I'm calling it a hit. I, is that the right terminology, a hit? Well, in uh, regular remote viewing, we don't call it a hit usually. Um, we just talk about whether the session produced useful data for uh, the client or if it was in a teaching situation, if the, if the viewer hit the target. But in associative remote viewing, which was the subject of the, the book Deborah Katz and I just wrote, associative remote viewing, you do have either a hit or a miss because it's predicting an outcome of a future event like a sports game or the stock market or something, or the right. lottery for that matter. And so you can build statistics on what's, what's a hit and what's not a hit. Right. And what percentage of accuracy yeah. makes you a good remote viewer? There's quite a range of opinion about that because there actually haven't been uh, scientific studies about remote viewing per se and its accuracy as opposed to ARV. I mean, there have been some studies that sort of go that way. Another way to come at it is that Ed May, uh, who is the head of the Stargate program at Central Research Institute, um, says that only 1% of the population has uh, a heightened ability to do this. Mm-hmm. He's a, uh, in a minority. I think most people feel that it's trainable and that you can get uh, people. You know, originally the uh, this control remote viewing program was set up to train soldiers who may not have had any particular uh, natural ability to become remote viewers. But of course, mm-hmm. they did have a selective process, and they got six people in there who did have some ability, and so. In terms of accuracy, again, it depends. Uh, as, as has been pointed out, sometimes a client just needs one piece of information. And so you might have a lot of data in your session that's incorrect, but if that one piece is what the client needs, then great. And Joe McMonagle and others have given a variety of uh, figures for how accurate their, their stuff Before is. Before we get into the yeah. figures, because yeah. I saw that in your book. We're okay. going to take a break now. Sure. And, and we've talked about remote viewing, what it is, and the accuracy, and, you know, uh, some of the people who have done it. And when we come back, we're going to get into, I hope we get into more of the different types. And as you said, the, the models, how it's done. So we'll okay. be right back. One thing's for certain, life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, this is Barb Crowley, and I'm back with John Knowles. And we've been talking about remote viewing, and we've been talking about the different protocols and all. But now we're going to talk about the different ones, the associative remote viewing. Well, I'm going to give it to John. It gets out of my world and into his. (laughs) Okay, thanks. So associative remote viewing is a form of remote viewing that uh, attempts to solve the problem. For example, uh, it was originated by a guy named Stephen Schwartz. And he was uh, a naval, uh, he worked for the Navy for a while and saw that they used flags back in the 1700s. When there was a battle on, they would use flags to signal whether they should advance or retreat. In other mm-hmm. words, they, they had no phones. <laughs> they yeah, talk, no so cell they used, phones. <laughs> they used, so Schwartz said, well, maybe we can use this in remote viewing. Let's, use, let's go to the racetrack and we'll We'll have a couple of pictures that we'll give to the viewer beforehand for each horse, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and then which, if the viewer draws that horse, then uh, or maybe the horse's colors or the gate n- number or something, we'll bet on that. So he did that, and he and Ed May went to the track, bet $2 and 114 and jumped up and down like they were 
won the lottery because they were using <laughs> remote viewing. So since then, that's the dominant form of, of associative remote viewing, where you associate something like two pictures with whether the Red Sox or the Yankees are going to win. You tell yourself that as the task. Well, this picture of the Eiffel Tower is that I'm going to show the viewer if the Red Sox win. If they don't win, I'll show them the other picture if the Yankees win, heaven forbid. So, <laughs> oh, well, I'm, now let's talk. <laughs> I'm from Boston. I'm from Boston. So, uh, so that's called binary ARV, and it's been used in about 99% of the uh, usages of associative remote viewing. But, and this gives the remote viewer something to target, something to look at. No, that this, will. No, in this case, the viewer doesn't have a clue that it's a baseball game. You don't have to tell the viewer it's a baseball game. You just say, I'm going to show you a picture on Monday. I want you to draw me that picture. Oh, okay. And talk about it. Talk, you know, give me some words about that picture, what's in it. And then if they tune into, let's say, you've used the Empire State Building as a win. If they tune into the Empire State Building, you know who's going to win. That's right. If, and you okay. can use a, a, a scale called the TARG scale or the Stanford Research Institute scale of 0 to 7 to score that session. And if it's above a certain level, using 3.5 or 4, then you bet it. If it's not, you don't bet it. And you can use this for anything uh, stock market, crypto, NFTs, and also just you know whether a merger is going to succeed or, or something like that. So it doesn't have to just be betting in sports. It can be any binary question that you can come up with in theory. You could use associated remote viewing for. How do you the, that score? How do you get to that score? Well, the different ways you can um, have a list of characteristics of the. Uh, of the, of the photograph, for example, and if the session matches those characteristics, like colors and shapes and so forth, then you can uh, score it a certain way. And it's, it's a matter of developing your uh, ability to do that over time, of course. It takes time to, to uh, figure out what is possible and what's not possible from the, from the remote viewers, because remote viewers generally cannot, if the target is a, a Ford automobile, they may not get that it's an automobile even, but they might get wheels and steering, the steering part, color, the shapes, because uh, remote viewing is best for when you're using colors and sensory impressions and, and uh, magnitudes and things like that. It's not good for naming. It's really very difficult or interpretation. Yeah, so yeah. remote viewers, uh, the analysts have to recognize that, and they also have to know what the viewer's capabilities are, so the, the more you know your viewer, the better the results are going to be. You'll know whether to trust your view or whether to put down the bet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to, to give you a, 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 an amazing story about this. Uh, so, uh, but I want to also say something about another form of remote viewing. That's where you actually can remote view the emotions of somebody who has an interest in the outcome of the game. For example, oh. it could be a fan, could be a losing pitcher or a winning pitcher, it could be the announcer, it could be the coach. So I ran a, several uh, experiments like that back in 2006 with two, uh, three, three remote viewers. And one of them was so good that he could tell if there was a, uh, a professional better in a casino in Vegas, mm -hmm. that's what we would name, whether that guy was happy or not, <laughs> 10 minutes after the game from his bed. So we had nine hits in a row doing that and made quite a bit of money. Uh, but on the 10th time, we failed and we lost money in that that uh, affected the morale, I guess, of the group. And so that happens too, that sometimes you have a streak and then it, it stops, so. Uh, right, you know. right. Now, how many people go to a casino <laughs> and do this? And does the casino throw you out when you're able to do this? I, know, I know that's a little, you know, I know side two people who've been, uh, been kicked out of casinos for because of their psychic abilities, there's probably a lot more that we don't hear about. Wow. Um, but not too many remote viewers in the remote viewing community uh, spend a lot of time in casinos. We have our conferences there, a lot of conferences in Vegas. Uh, uh, yeah. but, but as far as actually just living there, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, when they throw them out, what did they say? We don't like you. You win too much. <laughs> I, I just heard from one of them that they just took him aside and said, you know, you can't come back in here. They didn't beat him up or anything. But they, they didn't said, give him a reason. Yeah. Yeah. No, they just they don't have to. They, you know, yeah. You can't, you can't even wear a hat in there because they're afraid you 
might have something under your hat. Oh, wow. Never, never mind in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you have your, um, your conferences and conventions in Vegas, how come you don't go into the casinos and use that as uh, no, we, practice we, in a way? No, we do. We do. Uh, oh, you I was, do. I was part of the uh, Applied Precognition Project, which is the largest group, has about 1,200 members. Marty mm -hmm. Rosenblatt's been leading that for, uh, for 20 years, and we've had lots of conferences in Vegas uh, at the Green Valley Ranch, actually, outside. And we would place sports bets, usually, um, maybe six or seven on a three-day conference. And people, of course, could also do whatever else they wanted with the lottery or craft tables and stuff like that. Personally, I just, I'm not wild about casinos, so I went for right. the conference more than for the betting, but it's always fascinating and interesting when we get a group of people together in an environment like that, and it's really plus the excitement of maybe winning some money. So, yeah. <laughs> now, um, remote viewing, and um, I might have the term, terms wrong on this, but projecting into the area where you actually spiritually go there is is that the same thing no I, I think most of us think that it's a very passive uh it's, it's largely passive in that you're opening your mind up and your senses up we don't know how it works you know there's really no scientific explanation for how we can do this at, against time and against space uh hal pudoff who's uh prominent remote viewer, prominent scientist, I should say, but he, he's very, he was instrumental in developing control remote viewing. He's a laser physicist, and he's been involved with lots of stuff recently with UFOs and all that, but he's also just a top scientist. Anyway, someone asked him, you know, how does remote viewing work? What's your best guess, guess as to how it works? He mm -hmm. says, my best guess is I don't have a clue. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least he's honest. Yeah. yeah. He's very <laughs> honest. And he's got a lot of secrets to tell it that if he ever uh, will about remote viewing and also about uh, UFOs and UAPs and science and uh, zero point energy and all of that stuff. So he's, he's quite an amazing character. Wow. Yeah. Um, when you're remote viewing, not a structure, but somebody, something with people there. Do they know that you're looking at them? Can they feel anything? <clears throat> um, I think that most of us feel that they do not feel something. There's a few people in the field that said, yes, uh, they do. And there was an example from the Stargate program, the military program, that supposedly some Russians who were also remote viewing were aware that we were remote viewing them. But that's a, you know, anecdotal, apocryphal. We don't know if that really happened or not. There's no evidence that it does happen. Yeah. Other, other than someone said, well, I, I felt some viewing. But there are plenty of people in this field, you know, who are into psychic phenomena outside of remote viewing and into ours and into entities and spirit guides and all that. So a number of people yeah. in this field feel that, uh, well, take, take Angela Ford. She was one of the best viewers at, at Stargate at uh, Fort Meade. And she channels the information. That's how she gets it. Uh, she does not use control remote viewing. She channels it. And she was one of the best viewers they had by reports of most people. So um, there's so a lot So you still of, call her a viewer, even though she's channeling. They still Right, because yeah. the, 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 what makes it remote viewing is the protocol, not the method. You, you can stand on mm -hmm. your head and whistle Dixie, as they say, and that's still <laughs> remote viewing if it's done in the protocol. You know, um, I don't. I think everybody has done this in their life. Be beside, behind someone and stare at them until they turn around. Yeah. So you know, so you can feel someone looking, even though you don't know it. There's nothing physical about it that you can know, and you yeah. can feel it. Yeah. Rupert Sheldrake, the British uh, researcher, has written a book about that and other similar things, uh, trying to get us up beyond this narrow. Uh, scientific protocol uh, paradigm of materialism. Um, although I have to say, you know, I'm still a materialist in some ways, but anyway, yeah, absolutely. The, the dogs know when the owners are coming home as well, that kind of thing that right. Rick has looked into. So there's definitely something going on besides a, a narrow materialist view would think is actually real. There's mm -hmm. much more to reality than we, we, we know. Um. Okay, back back to the nuts and bolts of it. What is unitary ARV? 
Right. So after being in the Applied Precognition Project for a few years and having done a lot of associated remote viewing with two photos, binary, um, there's something called displacement. The viewer will tend to get the wrong photo or they'll get information from both photos. Photos mm -hmm. are what's generally used. So uh, a friend of mine, Don Walker, who is a uh, chiropractor, and he was on the public demonstration team of the other group, another group I was in, Transdimensional Systems. He said, why don't we target the emotions, the one I just mentioned, uh, the experiment we just did, why don't we target emotions that will not have displacement? And so far, it does not seem to have displacement. So I've been promoting unitary remote viewing for some time. Um, and the results are maybe slightly better than binary, but there's only been, I don't know, several hundred attempts with unitary ARV. But you could have emotions, or you could all just have one photo instead of two. And with one photo, if the viewer's session matches the photo well enough, then you bet it. And if they don't, you don't bet it. So mm -hmm. there's two-point binary and unitary ARV. So you have a win and not a lose. Yeah. Yeah, Or, or a pass. Or a pass. You can pass, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, now we're getting complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you first studied, you... you studied with a woman named Prue, and I don't really remember her last name, but Bellabies. she, thank you, yeah. she actually had a commercial business yes. with remote viewing, and yes. sounds like a very successful commercial business. CEOs and all of that came to her and, and yeah. employed her, and with with paid remote viewers. Yes, uh, Prue was a remarkable woman. Um, and she was one of the few women in the field, certainly the only one running a company with success. And I just happened to uh, get in touch with her through a friend of mine in Berkeley at a conference on new science and ancient wisdom. So I went to that conference, I trained with her, then became one of the viewers and eventually became the training coordinator for the what we call the Banana Slam training program. So she and John Vivanco, John Vivanco is still around and he's still teaching uh, that method and also doing projects, um, had a successful business indeed with uh, large uh, companies in, on uh, Wall Street and elsewhere. And she also had connections in Hollywood. So one, one guy who actually wanted to date her um, uh, came up with a project and someone had stole millions of dollars. So there was an extensive pro uh, project to find that money. And she said to him, look, you're 30 years older than me, so we're not going to do that. But that's the whole other side of remote viewing, the personal relationships, which are quite interesting. Um, mm -hmm. But also, um, she was good enough, and, our, and the group was good enough that we did an awful lot of viewing for the FBI uh, during anti-terror, you know, anti-terror stuff after 9-1-1. So we were doing that, and she was getting attacked uh, very strongly, I think in part because she was a woman and because mm -hmm. she was forceful and, and innovative and brilliant. She had also uh, taken part in something that really was bad and she apologized for it. It was called the Hale-Bopp situation where there was a comet that came by. It's, it's a long story. I won't get into it uh, now unless you want me to, but that sort of sullied well, her reputation. But she did apologize for uh, misusing remote viewing along with uh, her her mentor was a fellow from the Farsight Institute in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So there was that, but uh, there was no cause to set up uh, Prue Watch, which is a hate site that's been up ever since. Oh my God, it got yeah. that bad. It's that bad. It's, yeah. the, it's partly the male chauvinism, partly the, to me, it's the military mindset too. And also, I think the CIA and the, and the DIA wanted to control this when it became out into the public domain. And here was a person who was not military was not being controlled and had the most successful business right. um, part, part, part of the reason that the viewers were getting uh, doing so well getting paid was that a Hollywood actress put up a million dollars believing in this as an investor and for a short time some of the viewers were getting eighty thousand dollars I was not part of that core I was in the Bay Area and the core was in Carlsbad yeah. California um, so that yeah crew was very successful but then for a variety of reasons which I outlined in, in my book, first book, Remote Moving from the Ground Up, um, they were they were threatened. Crew was threatened and John mm -hmm. was threatened. Shut down or else. So you know, I have down. a couple more questions about Prue, yeah. but we're gonna wait till after the break sure. uh, to ask those questions. And we're gonna take a break now and we'll be right back with more 
get more information about Peru and interdimensional, right? Transdimensional. Uh, yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll be right back. Okay. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, this is Barb Crowley, and we're back, Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. We are back with uh, John Knowles, and we've been talking about Prue Calabrese, who had the trans-dimensional um, business, really, yeah, that, that uh, was a commercial business and um, very successful. There are two questions I wanted to ask. You talked before we broke about um, the FBI, um, you working with Prue, did they pay her? <laughs> no. Did she charge them? No, they no I just... think it was pro bono work. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I've wondered about that. And then also she was one of the few women in this field, which was really, it's when it started it was very paramilitary kind yes. of thing. Um, is one gender better than the other? Probably not. Uh, I think Prue felt that uh, women were better, particularly older women <laughs> were better, and particularly, yeah. I think, uh, gay older women were better. But she never produced any statistics on that. And uh, that was her. her she, she was a wonderful person, but she sometimes exaggerated and, and felt that people needed to be uh, motivated. So she would say things that were maybe not strictly true. But you know, I'm not going to falter since she has such a successful, and we trained so many people too at the time, you know, very intensive. I, I had six months of intensive training. And then in the program we were running, we also were intensively training other newer folks. So transdimensional was, was a great experience to be part of. And, and I'm really happy that John Vivanco was the number two guy is still doing it. And he's also been very successful since then on his own as a remote viewer, making money, you know, as very was living at it. In part, you know, I want to go back a little bit to the um, to the where where Prue got into trouble. She worked with another company in Atlanta, um, and and they had took a look at um, I think the comet coming in. Yes, and and what they saw. You want to take it from there because the way we left it, I you know if we can shorten it, but the way we left it, it sounded like. Um, it was a deliberate thing, and I don't want to leave her with that um, with that idea because it wasn't. It was a very innocent remote read that went wrong. Well, they might have been set up. It looks like they were set up, actually. Oh, so it wasn't that innocent. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Didn't the, realize that. <laughs> the, the director of Farsight has had a long interest in UFOs since the very beginning, and so he, he was convinced that, I guess, that there was a, a something accompanying the hail bop and it was had aliens in it. Um, and so they did a lot of remote viewing and they were both convinced, Prue uh, and this uh, director, that yes, there was an accompanying body to hail bop And so they went on the Art Bell show and talked about that and said they had photographs that an astronomer had sent them confirming that. And that's a coast to coast coast to uh, coast radio right? show. Yeah. yeah. And those photographs turned out to be there was no astronomer that came forward. Uh, apparently, he, he did exist, but they were set up, in other words. Yeah. So afterwards, Prue wrote an apology and said, I misused science. We were not following the protocols of remote viewing. The director, as far as I know, has not ap- apologized in public, although in his book, mm-hmm. he said it, it was stupid what he did. Okay. Um, right. So she took a big hit from that. And of course, he took a big hit, too. And uh, their reputations were severely damaged. In fact, Farsight school did not thrive so Prue left developed her own method which she felt was better called transdimensional remote viewing and that's what I was trained in and what I trained when I was the coordinator and I still use it although it's a dynamic method you can you can make uh, variations in it and most people do so that's in brief yeah Prue 
crew had a bad rap from all of that. And also just in general, aside from that, you know, because people didn't give her credit where it was due. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, here's the truth of it. Are we sure there wasn't an alien, <laughs> an alien spaceship next to the comet coming in, directing We're, or anything? Has anybody proven for sure that there wasn't any? You can't prove it. And I thought actually that on the side, Proof said, I still think there was something there. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. <laughs> I know. Um, because there are some UFO, UFOlogists who believe that. Um, Aliens are very active in, in, you know, saving us in many ways. So I yeah. like to think that. <laughs> I, I, I believe like that UFOs were real since 1953. I'm quite old, and I remember the flap, flap over Washington, D.C., and, and then I've read all the literature since, or lots of it, you know, and went to conferences. Never saw a UFO myself, but I do think they're real. And as we talked, there is a tie between you know, you and the UAPs or UFOs and now that the government's acknowledged that they exist, hallelujah, it's taken 80 right, time, right. But, but at least they're that, that way. Yeah. And the tie between the two. Yes. Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, so in part of the tie arose because people like Ingo Swan and Joe McMonagall have remote viewed UFOs, including in front of, you know, they were viewing something for, for a general, and the general said to Ingo, what is that that you just drew? And Ingo looked up at him and said, what do you think it is? <laughs> it was a UFO, you know. Um, yeah. And also, Ingo wrote this book, Penetration, which uh, has come out recently about a guy named Axelrod, who took him on a plane to Alaska where a UFO came out of the lake. And uh, so, and Ingo was a pretty uh, truth teller. He was a truth teller. And so we don't think he made that up. So in addition, in other words, to remote viewing UFOs, Ingo also had experiences. And Joe McMonagall also saw a UFO, uh, which actually uh, singed his companion that he was with, a, a guy who got, uh, for, for many years afterwards, suffered from the burns from the UFO. Joe did not, he said, because he, he was, had swum a lot, so he was well tanned. This happened on the beach. So now with, uh, and Hal Pudoff, that I mentioned earlier, uh, is a connection too because he has actually done a lot of research on uh, zero point energy and other exotic energies, and, and he was the head of the Stargate program from 1975 to 85. So there's many and many viewers too of remote viewed UFOs. Uh, and in fact, Prue asked me one time. She said, "Why don't Why don't you run a project on Roswell?" And I was I was naive. I was stupid. I should have done that because there is. <laughs> There is feedback from Roswell. You know, there's yeah. lots of stories. Uh, and uh, Jesse Marcel and others have produced uh, their own books about what happened there. That something did. So I should have done that. What mm-hmm. I did instead, though, was I did run a project on UFOs over Oakland, California, in the 1890s because there was microfiche uh, in the libraries about that. So I figured, well, that's that's some feedback. So I did run that project, and the viewers did come up with UFO type information. So uh, I'm, I'm a quote unquote a believer. And, and the ties are, are just very strong between the two fields, uh, at least thematically, as I, as I mentioned to you before the show, um, the UFO people don't want anything to do with us uh, <laughs> now. And before that, it was the remote viewers didn't want anything to do with the UFO folks. They were so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one is always making the other one look bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now we're in it together. Yeah. Uh, is the government currently have any project using UFO and not UFOs remote viewing. I know about their UFO project, although yeah. what little they're telling us, but well, the, um, mm-hmm. the remote viewing project, is there a current one going on? Well, the official line from the ex-military folks who are teaching remote viewing uh, is that there's no such project. And Dr. Ed May, who was the head of Stargate from uh, 1985 to 95 says he and Joe McMonagall tried to get a program uh, started up again after the CIA uh, shut it down and they were unsuccessful. So that's the official line. I think mm-hmm. many of us think, uh, and I happen to be one of them, that yes, there has been some uh, work done uh, by the government of the remote viewing in, in those years since. Absolutely, I can think so. Now, who shut it down and why? Um, the CIA was going to uh, put out a document 
the air report, uh, I believe it was called, and that sort of said that um, there had been no useful information from remote viewing that's past 20 years, <laughs> even though the government had spent $20 million and over a 20 year period and the mm -hmm. funding had to be revived every few, every year, they said, oh no, there was no, and, and Gates went on television, the defense sector, uh, secretary, whatever its title was, and said, no, there'd been no actionable intelligence. Well, that was just simply false. And Ed May now says that the reason it shut down, and you know, he was a scientist involved he, at the time, was that the uh, CIA was in deep trouble for all many of its you know, terrible activities in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And Congress told them, you shut down or we're going to shut you down. You shut down the remote viewing program, we're going to shut you down. And there's some memos to that. So that's Ed May's story, and he knows better than anybody else why. Mm -hmm. there were, uh, the, the, the excuse that they used was, you know, that there was no merit merit to it but that wasn't the reality right so you think they've they may have brought it back and and just not saying yes uh -huh. because uh for example ingo swan he trained initially six people at fort uh, from fort meade mm -hmm. but then he had later he admitted that there was a, another group of i don't know maybe a dozen remote viewers that he trained and they were much more business-like uh, or whatever they were business-like and serious not that the Fort people weren't, um, to some extent. But anyway, that group, uh, we've never heard of them since. So here we have, we have a group that was trained by Ingo, but he would never talk about that. You know, he would never violate his, his oaths uh, uh, right. from his right. contract. So, yeah, that, that, that in itself, beg, you know, begs, what were those people? Who were they? Where did they go? So, yeah, I do think there was more work going on. Yeah. Yeah. And they also, in the case of Prue, they also went out um, to remote viewers who were civilians, basically, and and would work with them then. I guess they're not doing that now. That was the FBI, not the CIA, I think. But um, I guess they'd be a little afraid to do that now that to have it hit the news, <laughs> <laughs> you know, come to light. <laughs> well, because no government on earth wants uh, people at of their citizens to be able to remote view their secrets. <laughs> right? uh -huh. So it's all done undercover. The, the Russians, uh, the Soviets had a huge remote viewing program too. And since the end of the Cold War, uh, Ed May and Joe McMonagall and Angela Ford have gone over there and met those folks and now they're friends and buddies. And you know, mm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they were enemies really. But so it's not just the Americans that have done remote viewing. Um, the Russians have and probably the Chinese because you know they and the Japanese, the Chinese have chi, you know, and, and that openness right. to that kind of stuff. So uh, it's undoubtedly the Chinese have worked on this too. Um, so basically we were all uh, remote viewing each other, <laughs> looking at each other. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I yeah. So. Yeah. And I believe, I'm sure, that they still are doing it. You yeah. know, they, yeah. um, they don't seem to have the restrictions that we have. Um, I want to know about the lottery, how to win the lottery. <laughs> Straight well, out. <laughs> you know, people say, uh, you know, guys, if you guys are so psychic, how come you don't win the lottery? So right. since I've been around for quite a while, I, I you know, keep my feelers out. And uh, we, we did find several people who'd won large amounts. And, and I myself have won small amounts in the pick three and the pick four. So starting with the big wins, um, there's a group in Canada that won $325,000 on a pick five. Wow. Team. And they had used photographs, one photo for each number, and they kept, uh, you don't want sort of too much mental noise going on, so they separate the roles kind of on a need-to-know basis. Mm -hmm. So they let us publish their method in our book, but they don't want their names out there, so we couldn't identify them. A second winner was $101,000. I know the woman in Eastern State, and she used... Uh, interoception, in other words, she would use body sensations internal, her throat would contract if that, if the number, she went through 35 numbers, and if that number was going to be a hit, her throat would do something, and if not, her belly would do something, a uh, sinking feeling in her belly. So she won $101,000, and I've seen the ticket on that. Yeah. So there's others, too, who have won large amounts, but they didn't want their names out there. Mm -hmm. As far as um, my own... Uh, thing with the lottery. One reason I wanted to do the lottery was that the remote viewing, we say it's very difficult to get numbers and and words. You know, uh, you can get sensory data, but getting nouns and names is difficult. 
So I wanted to see also about numbers if we could with the lottery. So I, I did quite a few experiments over the years and I worked with a couple of other people. And one person suggested, you know, why don't we look at not just the uh, lottery for today, but how about tomorrow and the day after? And so, so I went back and looked at all my results and yes, indeed, it pays. So one tip is if you're going to bet the lottery, do it not just for one day or one draw, but for at least four. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had specific methods, uh, automatic writing I use. I also use visualization and I detail these in the book, that the methods I used to win the pick three, pick four, many times, you know, maybe 20 or 30 times each. Um, and I haven't, you know, made tons of money because I'm really not focused did on it. Did you make it. any? Did you win? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, you I, did? I was the first person, I think, who's, you know, put up, uh, posted information that shows that I had a successful return on investment over, you know, eight months on the lottery. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. So it is doable. Um and mm -hmm. I think one of the main things is just, you know, with remote viewing, once you've done it a lot, you don't have an anxiety about it. You just get what you get, as we used to say in transdimensional systems. So don't have anxiety, just do it. But, but I think it's, it's better to actually master remote viewing a little bit so that you have a sense that it's real, that you can do it, and you're not worried if you get a, a wrong answer. Right. That, that sense of, of that you actually can do it is important and not be emotionally And that is practice. It. That and is practice. practice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and then the other way to do it is to get your book <laughs> and <laughs> right. learn how to do it. So yeah. um, let, let's start first with how people can get hold of you. Sure. Um, I have a, a portal, a web portal called MPRV, Music, Politics, and Remote Viewing. So if you look up that in my name, J O N K N O W L E S, you'll get my link. Or if you want to write to me, um, J-O-N-K-N-O-W-L-E-S-8 at yahoo.com. And the book can be, uh, is on Amazon, or you yeah. have a couple of books. You want to go through two, and tell us? Yeah, the first one's Remote Viewing from the Ground Up. That one's about transdimensional systems, and for Kindle, it's 10 bucks, of course, and mm -hmm. I think 16 for paper. And then the Associated Remote Viewing book, which we've had two really good reviews from two of the leading parapsychologists, uh, Dean Radin and Stan Krippner. Uh, it's 715 pages, took us 16 <laughs> months. It's not just about ARV, but about the history of remote viewing. And that thing is, you know, a little more expensive than paper at uh, at $35. But for Kindle, you get 715 pages for $10. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that, too, takes you through how to do the lottery, the yes. sports events, and yes. all of those things that our mere, us mere mortals are kind of interested in. <laughs> Well, also, uh, if I could say, we have 20 people who contributed their own work. We wanted everybody from the grassroots to have a say in this book, not just the well-known names. So we have chapters and partial chapters by 20 people who used associative remote viewing, most many of them with success. Yeah, that's great. John, thanks so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed it. and I've just whetted my appetite. <laughs> thanks so much, Barb, and good luck on the lottery. <laughs> thanks so much, and have All a good right. weekend. All right, you too. Bye-bye to everybody. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.